0: Without wishing to be flippant, brace yourselves. We've got a good couple of chapters. And please forgive me if I get my tongue tangled on occasions. We are in 2 Chronicles 34, which you can find on page 467. So 2 Chronicles 34. Josiah's reforms. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father, David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols, Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles and crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land and the temple, he set Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and Masaiah, the ruler of the city, with Joah, son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. They went to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the temple of God, which the Levites, who were the gatekeepers, had collected from the people of Manasseh, Ephraim, and the entire remnant of Israel, and from all the people of Judah and Benjamin, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then they entrusted it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the Lord's temple. These men paid the workers who repaired and restored the temple. They also gave money to the carpenters and builders to purchase dressed stone and timber for joists and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had allowed to fall into ruin. The workers labored faithfully. Over them to direct them were Jahath and Obadiah, Levites descended from Merari and Zechariah and Meshullam, descended from Kohath. The Levites, all who were skilled in playing musical instruments, had charge of the labourers and supervised all the workers from job to job. Some of the Levites were secretaries, scribes and gatekeepers. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan. Then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him, your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and workers. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Asaiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because those who have done gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tokath, the son of Hasra, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the new quarter. She said to them, this is what the Lord The God of Israel says, tell the man who sent you to me. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people. All the curses written in the book that have been read in the presence of the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all that their hands have made, my anger will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you've heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people, and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Now I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place and on those who live here. So they took her answer back to the king. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Then he made everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledge themselves to it. The people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. Josiah removed all the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites and he made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. As long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors.
1: Right, are you ready for more? 2 Chronicles chapter 35, and it's still on page 469. 469 in your Bibles. Here it goes. Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and the Passover lamb was slaughtered on the 14th day of the first month. He appointed the priests to their duties and encouraged them in the service of the Lord's temple. He said to the Levites, who instructed all Israel, who've been consecrated to the Lord, put the sacred ark in the temple that Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, built, not to be carried about on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel, and prepare yourselves by families in your divisions, according to the instructions written by David, king of Israel, and his son Solomon. Stand in the holy place with a group of Levites for each subdivision of the families of your fellow Israelites, the lay people, Slaughter the Passover lambs, consecrate yourselves, and prepare the lambs for your fellow Israelites, doing what the Lord commanded through Moses. Josiah provided for all the lay people who were there a total of 30,000 lambs and goats for the Passover offerings, and also 3,000 cattle, all from the king's own possessions. His officials also contributed voluntarily to the people and the priests and Levites, Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Jehiel, the officials in charge of God's temple, gave the priests 2,600 Passover offerings and 300 cattle. Also, Konaniah, along with Shemaiah and Nathanael, his brothers, and Hashabiah, Jehiel, and Josabad, the leaders of the Levites, provided 5,000 Passover offerings and 500 head of cattle for the Levites. The service was arranged, and the priests stood in their places with the Levites in their divisions, as the king had ordered. The Passover lambs were slaughtered, and the priests splashed against the altar the blood handed to them, while the Levites skinned the animals. They set aside the burnt offerings to give them to the subdivisions of the families of the people, to offer to the Lord, as it is written in the book of Moses. They did the same with the cattle. They roasted the Passover animals over the fire as prescribed and boiled the holy offerings in pots, cauldrons and pans and served them quickly to all the people. After this, they made preparations for themselves and for the priests because the priests, the descendants of Aaron, were sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fat portions until nightfall. So the Levites made preparations for themselves and for the Aaronic priests. The musicians, the descendants of Asaph, were in the places prescribed by David, Asaph, and my favorite, Heman, and Jejuthun, the king's seer. The gatekeepers at each gate did not need to leave their posts because their fellow Levites made the preparations for them. So at that time, the entire service of the Lord was carried out for the celebration of the Passover, and the offering of burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord as King Josiah had ordered The Israelites who were present celebrated the Passover at that time and observed the festival of unleavened bread for seven days. The Passover had not been observed like this in Israel since the days of the prophet Samuel. And none of the kings of Israel had ever celebrated such a Passover as did Josiah with the priests, the Levites, and all Judah and Israel who were there with the people of Jerusalem. The Passover was celebrated in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. And there's more. After all this... When Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, that's probably wrong, went up to fight Carchemish on the Euphrates and Josiah marched out to meet him in battle. But Necho sent messengers to him saying, what quarrel is there, king of Judah, between you and me? It's not you I'm attacking at this time, but the house with which I'm at war. God's told me to hurry, so stop opposing God who is with me or he'll destroy you. Josiah, however, would not turn away from him, but he disguised himself to engage him in the battle. He wouldn't listen to what Necho had said at God's command, but went to fight him on the plains of Megiddo. Archers shot King Josiah, and he told his officers, take me away, I'm badly wounded. So they took him out of his chariot, put him in his other chariot, and brought him to Jerusalem, where he died. He was buried in the tombs of his ancestors, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for him. And Jeremiah composed laments for Josiah, and to this day, all the male and female singers commemorate Josiah in the laments. These became a tradition in Israel, and are written in the laments. The other events of Josiah's reign is acts of devotion, in accordance with what is written in the law of the Lord. All the events, from beginning to end, are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah.
2: Thank you very much for reading so well and with great perseverance. I'd like to pray before we start. Father, may the words of my mouth the thoughts of our hearts and the actions of our bodies be pleasing in your sight, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. Firstly, I'd like to add my welcome to Joshua's early, particularly if you're new this evening. And I think also we ought to give ourselves a pat on the back just for being here, considering the temperatures outside. It's actually a lovely place to be on a Sunday evening, isn't it? My name's Nick. I don't normally... Um, come along to the 6pm service, so it's lovely to be with you this evening. Um, Thanks for having me. I heard the story of a lady um, who went to the doctor and she had swollen ankles and the doctor prescribed her some tablets. Um, He said to her to take them for two weeks on alternate days. What do you mean, um, just to clarify that she got her prescription right, what do you mean by alternate days, Doc, she says. And he replied, well, take the tablets on Monday, skip Tuesday, take them on Wednesday, skip Thursday, take them on Friday, etc. And uh, I'll see you in two weeks' time. So a fortnight passed, and when she came back, somewhat to the surprise of the doctor, she reported that the swelling had completely disappeared. The doctor said, this is excellent. No need for the tablets any longer. So she uh, jubilantly exclaimed, Doctor, I'm so pleased, I'm so pleased. Thank you very much. The skipping has been horrible. It's quite possible when we're reading some parts of the Old Testament, rather like this woman's misunderstanding of the prescription, to fail to comprehend God's big picture of redeeming a people for himself. It's easy to miss, what God is doing on the macro level. In the last four Sunday evenings, we've been working through some of the Old Testament kings in the book of 2 Chronicles. And it would be easy to only hear one element of it, wouldn't it? The human story, i.e. one king ruled well, another didn't, abused his power and caused great harm. So left to our own devices, it would be easy only to comprehend the human story, and completely miss the most important part seeing the controlling hand of God one of the things that I imagine that's put off so many young people with Christianity is exposure time and time again to dry, seemingly sterile teaching perhaps stories from the Old Testament that comes across as devoid of life perhaps stories even such as these in 2 Chronicles, don't know what you would have chosen if you could uh, come along to a normal um, Sunday evening service. What book you would have chosen. We often have our favourites, don't we? And I think it's good for us, if God's word is living and active all the way through, to sometimes come to books such as these that we perhaps wouldn't choose ourselves. And I'm, It was my prayer as I was preparing this that we would um, see wondrous things from God's word as we look at this together. So I want to take this opportunity to challenge us this evening as to how we respond to hearing God's word. And when we we open the Bible for ourselves, or perhaps when we open it with others under our influence, fellow students, um, spouses, kids, or grandchildren, um, when we open the Bible, and that bit sometimes is the first challenge to overcome, isn't it? Do we open the scriptures expectantly, desiring God to address us today? If God's word really is, as it describes itself, living and active, useful in all sorts of ways, we should expect to be challenged, rebuked even, encouraged, and built up, shouldn't we? And I speak to myself here this evening as much as anyone else. I personally find... This passage, the fact that all of God's Bible is inspired and breathed out by him, really difficult at times. And actually, to be sort of humble with you and open with you, I find this particularly hard when I'm reading the Bible with my kids. I tend to, um, with children, um, pick up a, a children's Bible, and you kind of read the Bible often just as stories, depending on what the Bible is what the version is it's more often than not been heavily edited and um, so that's a, a challenge firstly to get the right kids bible into your hands if you've got young people around you I need to pause more often than not before I dive in and read and sometimes I need to repent of sort of going into auto mode it's so easy isn't it to have a lack of expectancy that God actually wants to speak to us yeah He wants to speak to us. The God of the universe wants to speak to little us. We forget that his word is like a flame and a hammer. And if allowed, it will refine and shape me. It will refine and shape you. And it will be pleasing to him. It will be to God's great pleasure. His word, if you like, is like the lit fuse of a firework its sizzling, sparkling, and must therefore be handled with great care as we come face to face with the living God. And it's God's desire to relate to us like a parent to their children, intimately and individually, as well as communally, as we are this evening. So, tonight we come to the last of our series, looking at the line of kings between Solomon's reign in 970 B.C., and the Babylonian invasion, um, and the captivity of God's people in 586. I wonder if any of you uh, have been wondering, perhaps if you've been coming for a few weeks, what the purpose of coming and looking at these um, parts of Chronicles, these kings, have been. Are we hoping to learn a little lesson, as if it's an extension of a school assembly? or something akin to perhaps Thought for the Day on BBC Radio 4? Are we simply perhaps going back in history to 630 BC and having an extended story time? Are we getting some tips, perhaps, for faith? Are we looking at uh, kings of old and saying, well, he did right, and so we should do the same, and he he did wrong, so we should definitely not do that? So to help us not miss the big picture of what God's doing in the book of 2 Chronicles, it's really helpful to look at the context of the book as a whole. And to do that, we have to look at the situation right at the start and where it finishes. And the book of 2 Chronicles begins with Solomon in the newly built temple. In other words, God is establishing a special place, a dwelling place where he will meet with his people And we're told through the prayer of Solomon in chapter 5 and verse 21 that it's in the temple, this dwelling place of God, that he will hear his people and forgive. He will meet with his people, he will hear them and forgive. And so from that high point in Israel's history, the book of 2 Chronicles sadly is a slide downhill to judgment. 2 Chronicles, I don't know if you've flicked on to the next chapter, ends with an account of God's people committing wholesale adultery against the Lord. Josiah's time seems good for a while, but read on if you haven't done already. It's pretty ugly. We read in chapter 36 and verse 11 of Judah's final king, a guy called Zedekiah, the leaders and the priests and the nations as a whole became more and more unfaithful, we're told. They follow all the detestable practices of the nations and are even defiling in the meeting place of the Lord. Chapter 36, verse 15 reads, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But verse 16, they mocked God's messengers despising his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people. And then comes the numbing words and there was no remedy. So as a consequence of Judah's adultery and rebellion against God, he brings judgment through the Babylonians. Now many people, men, women, young and old, are put to the sword. The temple is burned and everything in Jerusalem of any value is either smashed or plundered and taken back to Babylon. God's people have treated him with contempt and the result is a right and widespread spread judgment from God. The temple is no more. God's people need a rescue and a new dwelling place. So the book of 2 Chronicles tragically, sadly, but truly is the account of a slide from provision and blessing to judgment. And the various kings that reign after Solomon are a mixed bag. None of them are able to stop the rot, to halt the slide. Some actually speed it up. The king we come to this evening is Josiah. And we've called him for our title this evening, Josiah the Reformed, And he's one of the very best. One of the very best of all those kings. In the book of two kings, he's actually described as the best. But I want to show you from our two chapters this evening, 34 and 35, why he failed. And having Jesus as your king is infinitely better than even the best of the Old Testament. So if you're not already there, please turn with me to these two chapters. And uh, let's have a look down with them together. Let me, rather than intending to uh, read two chapters again to you, I'm going to give you a quick timeline of Josiah, focusing on particularly on Josiah, his life. Just so we kind of get the picture, uh, um, the lifeline of, of this, this guy. So firstly, Josiah's reign follows his father, a guy called Ammon, who reigned just for two years before being killed off by his own officials. Towards the end of chapter 33, we're told that Ammon, like his father Manasseh, at the beginning of his reign, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So, with a wayward grandfather and a spiritually deprived father, whose violent death he may well have witnessed, Josiah comes to the throne age eight. Age 16, he begins to seek the Lord of his father David. Obviously not his parental father, but his ancestral father. And this is the theme of seeking that is a very big theme in 2 Chronicles and what we're going to focus on particularly this evening. I'll give you some examples. Chapter 15, If you seek the Lord, he will be found by you. Again, later in chapter 15, Judah, the nation, sought the Lord and he was found by them. Chapter 17, Jehoshaphat sought the Lord of his father. Chapter 20, The people of Judah came to seek help from God. It goes on, chapter 26, Uzziah sought the Lord. Chapter 31, Hezekiah sought the Lord. Chapter 33, in his distress, Manasseh sought the Lord. You get the picture. At the age of 20, he begins to remove the idols of the city of Jerusalem and from the high places across his kingdom of Judah. Then at the age of 26, he purifies the land from the detestable pagan worship that was rife across the land. And equally importantly, he starts to rebuild the temple. During the temple restoration, the book of the law of the Lord is found. Many think that's the book of Deuteronomy, and Josiah has it read to him. And so convicted is he when this book of God's law is read that he himself reads the words of this previously shunned book of God's law to all the people. He teaches them from this book that had been neglected. And following this public reading to all God's people, Josiah, standing in the temple, renews Judah's covenant, pledging the whole nation, from the lowliest to the greatest, to worship Yahweh alone, the one true God, the God of their forefathers, and he then, in chapter thirty-five, were told that Josiah organises a huge Passover feast, a sign of the country's ambitious reform on a scale never seen before since Samuel. Anyway, I was trying to do the, the math of how many sort of Tesco lorries it would take to contain—I <clears throat> don't know what it was in the end. I lost track. Maybe forty thousand sheep and lambs, and goodness knows how many head of cattle. My dad used to be a um, pedigree. Hereford farmer, and it always seemed a lot of cows when I saw 200 coming down the lane, let alone, you know, 6,000 or whatever it was. So, what are we to make of this king? If you were to write the accounts, the 31 years of this reign, why would you focus in on these particular events in his life? Why has the writer chosen these particular details to record? Well let's look at Josiah the seeker particularly, that's what I want us to focus on, I think that's what the passage brings to our attention, and how that looked in his life before coming on to how that connects with us today. When the phrase to seek the Lord is used, it's not like we may use the term to look for something that's lost, it's rather a wholehearted devotion to the Lord, to seek the Lord means a wholehearted devotion to the Lord. After being told that Josiah did what was right in the law, in the eyes of the Lord, which was a clear contrast to his early reign of his grandfather, and a complete contrast to his dad, we read that he didn't deviate from God's path either to the left or to the right. And this description brings in the main character in my mind, of Pilgrim's Progress. Those of you who've read it, Christian, didn't he, followed that narrow path, often on his own. It was a lonely walk. And he didn't deviate it. But when he did, he got into big trouble and he got back on the path. And we see how this seeking after the Lord was worked out by his devotion, his commitment, if you like. He was fully committed in how he dealt with the sin idol worship and the unfaithfulness of the people his people around to Yahweh the lord of their ancestors he didn't just close up the high places the incense altars and the asherah poles and put some maybe red and white tape around it saying out of order please don't use you know, like some broken toilet or please keep off the high places sign no he didn't do that did you note words like cut Smashed, broken, burned, crushed were used. He was uncompromising in his devotion to eradicate these idols and places used by God's people, God's own people, to prostitute themselves to other gods. Then, when he's in his 26th year, we're told in verse 8 that he starts to have the temple rebuilt. Must have been much jubilation for the faithful few when that news, the bricks laid on top of bricks again. The temple that had been left to fall into disrepair by his father and grandfather has now begun to be repaired, rebuilt. So we see from these verses that Josiah the Reformed was devoted in seeking the Lord. And that means being fully committed to smashing the sin in the land of Judah. And so we consider ourselves... Now, for a moment, we aren't going to draw a dotted line directly from the king of Judah round to ourselves, are we? Little me, son of John and Philip, Romans, living here in Cambridge. That, that wouldn't be wise. That wouldn't be right. But we are given these words from God's appointed king, Jesus, speaking to those who are listening to him on a, on a small hillside in Israel 660 years later. And he was correcting those listening about their attitude to daily worries. That was the topic of what food and clothes to wear. And he spoke these words. Do not worry, saying, what should we eat? Or what should we drink? Or what should we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So, for us, I want to draw the line that Jesus draws for us, for all those who profess to follow him as king, and to ask us to consider two aspects of our devotion to Jesus. First, how are we going in our turning from sin that so easily entangles? How are we going in our fight against sin? And second, how is our seeking his kingdom as our first priority going? How's our seeking of his kingdom first going? Turn from wicked ways. That's one of the phrases that's used. To turn in this context means to literally turn 180 degrees. Like a a driver, if you like, doing a U-turn. is how I explain to my children this idea of repentance. Josiah was determined to turn to the people of Judah from their false worship. The bowing down and preoccupation of created stuff, matter, rather than the creator himself. And I wonder how our turning from sin is going. How's it going today, yesterday? Are you thinking about how you might turn from from that sin for tomorrow, for next week, next time you go out with your friends? What are the things that occupy our minds and take up perhaps disproportionate amounts of our time? I guess amongst us there will be a plethora of different demigods that take the place of seeking God's kingdom first. Perhaps it's how we use our spare time. Um, Maybe it's what we chase after, what we use our limited energy on. And our bank statements testify, don't they, to our financial priorities. I know for me, the false worship over the years has started, since I started following Jesus, has been sadly widespread and far reaching. Over the years, for me, sport and chasing that next endorphin hit has been a reoccurring one. Food and perhaps general over appreciation of anything gourmet, edible, or beverage is still another preoccupation that I'm susceptible to fall into. Don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying that looking after ourselves physically or being discerning as to what we put into our mouths is a bad thing. On the contrary, it would be foolish not to be good stewards of our bodies, wouldn't it? But I know at times, and even perhaps this morning, I regularly have to face the, inter- the internal battle of, let's say I'm on breakfast duty, which is normally the case. I either seek the face of the living Lord or I please myself and I check my phone and I get out and have a run, take some exercise. I've only got 45 minutes, normally, once from when I'm woken by my youngest. I can't do both. I can't compromise. If I was up late the night before, um, I probably, be, if I hadn't been up late the night before, I probably could have done both. But this morning, for example, I wasn't and the pressure was on to seek after my own interest or God's. We have a verse in our in our house pinned on the wall in the kitchen and it goes like this it's from Psalm 143 verse 8. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love for I have put my trust in you show me the way I should go. So the second let's just think for a minute on how our seeking first Christ kingdom is going. God's word is instructive, isn't it? We know that in our heads. We know we need God's word each morning to align our priorities with God's. I know that even more than having my fill of porridge or my endorphins, God's word is actually what's going to be what's going to sustain me for the day. If only I would allow it to be written in my heart, and living that out in daily life is much harder, isn't it, than just saying it. Uh, Karen and I are in the phase of rearing children, uh, and a relatively new area of sin that has popped up for me is the craving and the longing for peace and quiet. I wonder what it is that you most crave at this phase of your lives. It's strange, isn't it, how an underlying discontent with the situation that we're currently in can be the root of sin. So when I am single, probably not as much as Karen... But I did at times idolise marriage. Now I'm married and have a fairly busy life with often two or three kids vying for my attention at the same time. It's easy for me to give into selfishness and begrudge the little ones that God's given and entrusted into my care. I'm absolutely devoted to Karen and I love my boys passionately, but left to my own devices, I'm quick to complain. I sometimes. You won't probably catch me hearing it because I keep it within the walls of my own house. It's a sort of private sin, if you like. But it's sin in much the same. This phase of parenting, bouncy young children, is something that I can begrudge. And that's something I need to address in my own heart. I need to regularly ask for God's forgiveness and seek his face again. I wonder, in the quietness of your own heart, what it is that you covet, what you dream about that's out of reach, easy to be wishing for that next phase of life, that next promotion, that next stage of academic um, endeavours. Perhaps it is academic success. If only it got those slightly higher grades, perhaps actually you would just love to be admired or respected more. Maybe you feel your parents or your child or spouse is not reading your mind as expertly as you'd like them to by now. Or maybe you've been slogging away on a community project or in the office for a long time now and yet no one seems to acknowledge just how much work you're putting in. Maybe you're trying really hard to honour your parents in some way. You're expending yourself, trying to be diligent, keep your room tidy, communicating better. Whatever it is, they just don't seem to value your effort. The reality is, with God's help, it is only our heart though, isn't it? that we have any real influence over. We can allow these grudges, those dreams, those desires to eat away at us, or we can repent and hand them over to the Lord, entrusting that he wants us to seek his face first in our daily living. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that your word is living and active, all parts of it. We're sorry for how we uh, treat it so often with, if not contempt, then with great casualness. Forgive us, we pray. Lord, we pray that you might stir in our hearts, stir them to action so that we might seek your face first, daily, hourly, Lord help us to put to death those sins that so easily entwine and tangle us and stop us following after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.